decentralized healthcare and biosensing with Winos. Hello, everyone. Welcome to join Winos decentralized healthcare and biosensing discussion series. This is Ryan from Winos Business Development Division, and I'm also um, the webinar host today. Since we have friends from all of the world, so I would like to say good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to all of you. Welcome. Winos is a biotech company focusing on promoting decentralized healthcare and biosensing. So we would like to offer a platform to connect domain experts and various players who share the same vision and currently working in the decentralized healthcare or biosensing space through our webinars and discussions. So we hope to share the latest developments in the field and create value to our partners, clients, and to create awareness and business opportunities to accelerate the development of the decentralized healthcare ecosystem together. So today we are very excited to have Dr. Howard to be our speaker, and he will bring us very interesting, insightful, and inspiring sharing on the topic of liquid biopsies enable personalized medicine. So let me have a brief introduction of Dr. Howard. He has experience in RNA uh, virology, liquid biopsies, and cancer molecular diagnostics. He successfully found out RNA biomarkers of urologic disease, such as multiple uh, sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, and uh, Alzheimer's disease, which were often misdiagnosed. He focuses his work on increasing diagnostic accuracy at the time of first uh, diagnosis and help the physicians and patients monitor and sustain health all over a lifetime by recording a blood test. So he's building a decentralized model to bring these diagnostics more accessible to reach everyone and everywhere. So today we are glad to have him to share his research and insight with us. Let's welcome Dr. Howard. Great, thank you, Ryan. And let me just bring up my sharing. Well, I wanna thank uh, Winnows uh, for uh, inviting me to give this presentation. Uh, we've uh, been in discussions about their uh, fantastic product line of being able to go out, collect samples, miniaturize, biosensing, quite amazing. What I'd like to do is talk about some of the content we'd like to put in on uh, some of these uh, test menus and why they're important. So I'm gonna describe liquid biopsies that enable personalized medicine. And my name is Howard Ernovitz. I prefer to be called Dr. Howard because the last name's hard. And I'm the chief executive officer of FBB Biomed uh, that's located in Coralville, Iowa, United States. So let's state the problem. Personalized medicine not evenly distributed across the globe. It's not even evenly distributed across a country, even an industrialized country. There are many rural areas that simply don't have the same access to personalized medicine. So what's the solution? Personalized medicine for all. So that's a pretty bold uh, uh, objective, but it's an important objective because if in fact the world is healthy, it gives viruses less chances to find reservoirs and, and change our planet and, and the like. And I'm gonna try and make that argument for you. 
So presently, you see that uh, the centralized uh, facilities, laboratory facilities, uh, international facilities, uh, samples come in or at the hospital, and this is fine for uh, urban areas, areas with a lot of population that can support these kinds of things. But that doesn't help us uh, to get everybody. The future is, in fact, uh, decentralization, is to try and have mobile labs where samples can be collected in a village, like I did with my urine test for AIDS. You go out, collect samples, bring them back, and then test them to see where HIV is. I want to now expand that program to now look at a new analyte. And so uh, what do we put on these uh, new mobile labs? And so you have to realize when you're talking about personalized medicine, it starts with personalized diagnostics. In, in other words, each person has their own problem and we have to diagnose it. So which diagnostics, uh, diagnostic tests do we run remotely? And I'm gonna make the strong argument that one test that should be on the menu is a liquid biopsy. So let's define it. It's really not hard. Liquid biopsy is minimally invasive alternative to surgical biopsies. In other words, uh, we're in the neurologic space right now. You can't go into somebody's brain looking for a lesion. It has to be done another way. And so liquid biopsy means often it's a blood test and it's minimally invasive. In fact, if you see the examples here, a lumbar puncture is often used to try and diagnose somebody's headaches or neurologic problems and the like. You have to pierce the skin, get into the cerebral spinal fluid. It's very unpleasant. I've done it twice. Uh, you have x-rays. Often when you see a nodule, it may be too late. And MRIs have the same problem. So on the bottom left, what we're suggesting then is a simple blood draw. It's been done for years. It's completely an industry. Um, and I think that's the easiest way to tap into what's going on in the body by listening to the internet of the body, the bloodstream. So let's think about the history of liquid biopsies. So in the middle here is a short paragraph, a couple paragraphs by um, Mandel, Drs. Mandel and Matai uh, in Paris in 1947. And they discovered that nucleic acids were in fact in the plasma of people and in fact higher in the plasma of people with cancer. So one of the first liquid biopsies ever done. The amazing fact that 1947 was a good six years before Watson, Crick, uh, Franklin and Wilkinson all discovered the uh, actual helical structure of DNA. So then the last part, and there's many other discoveries I am leaving out, but for me, the big one is Kerry Mullis, who in the 1980s discovered how to take a molecule of DNA and expand it to a level of concentration uh, quantity that we can now manipulate, look at, sequence, and learn about. So that's the discovery phase of liquid biopsies. Now, counting DNA and RNA. This takes us to the mid-90s when uh, Professor uh, Dennis Lowe of the Chinese University of Hong Kong brilliantly had this idea that if he could go into the bloodstream of a pregnant woman and be able to count DNA, that if in fact there's too high amount of DNA, it probably means that the fetus may have Down syndrome. And so this brilliant non-invasive prenatal testing, NIPD as it's known, T, has offered millions of women options that they never had before and has changed the, the world forever. Uh, uh, Dennis Lowe continues to be one of the leading clinical chemists and his work 
in prenatal testing is exemplary. At the same time, I was interested in cancer and also this mysterious illness called Gulf War illnesses. And also the time studying with uh, uh, Paul Cheney, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. And what we were looking at was the RNA. And we found that if we counted the RNA, not the DNA, we could in fact see things that were in people with the disease and not in the normal controls. Now let's fast forward to the future or to the present. The history of liquid biopsies now are products. So I'm not going to go into the other liquid biopsies like circulating tumor cells or circulating microvesicles. These are all fantastic uh, areas of research and products. I wanna focus more on the big picture that to understand this is a 454. This is the first machine uh, we used uh, back in 2008 when we were the first to publish the profile of normal human beings using uh, next generation sequencing and DNA. And uh, this has been done uh, really throughout the last 10, 15 years. It's now a robust industry of about $15 billion in the US. Uh, but now I wanna talk about the fact that one can do RNA sequencing as a uh, liquid biopsy. And here you can see our poster from 2022, which was just a few months ago, when we announced to the world that we can in fact count uh, uh, gene sequences in the blood of people with Alzheimer's, multiple sclerosis of Parkinson, and show a differential diagnosis by looking at the RNA. Those studies, of course, were done in proof of concept studies, and we uh, thank the uh, Iowa Economic Development Association for giving us the money to now do a demonstration run with more sample. So if we look at the uh, landscape of things, uh, on the left side, if you talk in terms of the DNA-based uh, uh, oncology offerings, you can see it's a pretty crowded field. In fact, this is not even all the players. And what you see is the new use cases that are here on the, the top line. So here you can see those that are trying to build an early detection test are here. Grail is actually through, uh, 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 through their uh, acquisition. Illumina's acquisition of Grail is now offering this screening test around the world and the other ones will be now soon. But we do have a robust area of, of uh, therapeutic selection, minimal residual disease, how much cancer is still left, monitoring, which is what I worked on for end-stage cancer patients. But if you go over to here, how many RNA-based uh, uh, offerings are there in neurology? There are none. And in fact, that's us. And I wanna point out that the yellow is, this is still in development and that we're doing our uh, demonstration fund with the eye of this fall doing thousands and thousands of samples. And hence the reason I'm giving this webinar is if you're interested, get in touch with me. So you can see it's a pretty barren field. Now, this is a difficult field to start. There's, there's not a lot of players in this field for good reason. When you do RNA sequencing from patients, 50% of it doesn't map to the human genome. It's called junk, or many people call it junk. And so while RNA is in abundance compared to DNA, sometimes 1,000 more copies than the original copy of DNA, that's a good place to start when you're doing diagnostics because your signal to noise will be much better. The bad news is we have no idea what we're measuring. Well, we do now. So let's get back to this idea of decentralization and getting the lab to the patient. Uh, the centralized uh, model, the journey of the patient, is uh, that a patient has a symptom. 
uh, seeks diagnosis and goes to the hospital, the clinician. Uh, the clinician orders a test and is processed at the centralized laboratory. Sent back to the physician, makes the personal diagnosis, and the patient gets that diagnosis. Uh, this is a mature field right now. The health payers are seeing that by uh, uh, reimbursing these types of tests, that they're saving lots and lots of cost savings by finding disease earlier and more precisely. In the decentralized model, here, you would have somebody collect the sample. It would be processed in the mobile laboratory and uploaded through cell links uh, to a centralized facility where the pathologist, now you see that the pathologist will get the report, send it back uh, through a team of neurologists and say, this is our recommendations. So the doctor is never removed from the equation. It's just that we have it centralized. And still, we expect this to be reimbursed because of catching disease early makes all the difference in the world. So in the DNA sequencing applications, this is a cartoon of DNA. This is a chromosome. You have 23 of them, uh, two pairs. And if we look at this area here, these are called exons. And when these exons are all stitched together at the end, you have the exact code you need to go into the cytoplasm and make protein or files. So we call these the files of the genome right now because they, they code for protein. So what can you do, the applications? Well, you can see mutations in the germline. These are called single nucleotide polymorphisms and they're very important for treatment selection. Many patients that have a certain SNP will not be eligible for a certain immunotherapy against their cancer or perhaps uh, uh, the opposite. You see insertions and deletions in the DNA, chromosome fusions, copy number variations, but it all really has, and, and it's not very sensitive, I must add, because SNPs, if I had to guess, around 50% of tubers actually have SNPs. So you're starting out behind the eight ball with not even being able to detect something that's not there. And it's the same for all of them. In copy number variations, well, they really only work on end-stage cancer patients. So with all those limitations in, in uh, sensitivity, the real problem I have is you're just measuring virtual life. This is the blueprints that your mothers and father gave you. Uh, in cancer, you do get a few mutations, but it really is managing more of a static uh, environment. Now, when we look at RNA, so remember, DNA makes RNA, and then who knows what. Uh, in this case, we talked about the coding. This is the files of the body. The files say this is the 30,000 proteins we need to make to create life and sustain life. And, uh, but then there's non-coding. In other words, uh, it's been previously called junk. And in this junk are things called non-coding, NC, RNA, OM. Uh, OM means the entire community. And in here, you just see all kinds of flavors of RNA. No, no wonder that's so confusing for all these things of how can you organize all of this. And so what we're saying is, from our aspect is, we look at this completely different. We think that we're looking at a biological operating system. In fact, we even spent the money to trademark BioOS. So we're, we're comparing this to the computer analogy that a computer has, a, if you have Macintosh, a Mac OS. And what is it? It's code that says, here are the files on uh, this computer, and here's how we want you to manipulate it so you can create things. 
But in the biological operating system, it's more unique because not only is there a code for how to manipulate the files, but the RNA itself can become files. That's the really fascinating part of biology. So you can have all kinds of ribozymes and entities. This used to be code, but now they're files. And so by then appreciating a bioOS system, you can start looking at things like the transfer RNAs, the ribosomal RNAs, the ribozymes, everything. But now you're measuring life. Because once DNA comes alive, RNA is now the sustaining operating system to keep that life going. So that's our, that's our hypothesis and our perspective for product development, which I'd like to share with you. And so we see this then, uh, the BioOS uh, enables personalized medicine for the following reason. We have a bunch of happy kids in our rural uh, area. And we have the mobile lab collect a bunch of samples. It's my goal someday to make these saliva samples. For right now, we have a blood test and we'll uh, get that out first. The uh, technician will then uh, uh, do the uh, liquid biopsy in the mobile lab, upload it to uh, the centralized facility, crunch the data, and send it back here. So it's really that simple. The doctors will be involved all the, at all methods. It's just that we're bringing the lab to the patient. So here, let me share with you. You know, uh, in Germany, as long as I have, you have a very sincere appreciation for music. And although this is the San Francisco Symphony, which I also spent many years in, we believe that the music of life must always stay in tune. That's how we're approaching this, that we're building listening devices to hear if somebody's out of tune or not. And if they are the conductor, who is the doctor, he is notified when one player is out of tune. The conductor resets that player and the music proceeds. So we envision then these little microphones, each one over all the different players uh, here and the audience is the patient. So if in this analogy, if too many players are out of tune, we call that symptomatic. So if half the symphony is just playing out of tune, everybody can hear that and you're symptomatic. What we want to do is get more sensitive than that. If only a few players are out to even one, we detect your disease before it becomes the symptoms. And this is the eventual goal of decentralizing medicine, personalized medicine, is to find uh, these things early. Because if you find them early, you can cure people early. So the use cases for liquid biopsy then are screening. Uh, uh, and I'll show you one application I think is a incredibly important for us to talk about. Differential diagnosis. Well, we had to build a test that can be able to tell somebody comes in with a headache. And in the field of neurology, it could be 18 to 30% of people are misdiagnosed, given the wrong treatment, and therefore the ability to cure people early is gone. So what we are doing is a differential diagnosis. Not only will we tell you at the time of symptoms right now, that uh, it is a neurologic disease, but we'll tell you which one. That's called differential diagnosis. So not only do you have a disease, it's this, and therefore this is how we treat those diseases, but we found it early, so we expect a better result. Then, since you know what the pattern of this personalized uh, breakdown of this person is, you can monitor specifically for that person for the rest of their life.
and keeping that patient in tune. So this is an application that I really think is important, and I'll tell you why. Um, when I was talking to the Winnows folks, they said, you know, we're, we are touched by your latest LinkedIn about the fact that uh, this is the 50th anniversary of my mother's death next month. And so uh, I'll announce in uh, uh, the first week in June what I believe were uh, the real things that added to her uh, getting breast cancer because I don't believe she just had breast cancer. So one of the applications I want to know is can we use mobile devices to find out where the music is out of tune? Here's a, here's a map, a hot map of industrialized area, lots of centralized facilities. Here's all these environmental things going on. Uh, high level cancer, high level of MS, whatever. But what about out here in the, in the rural areas and the like? And so what we think is, if you listen to the music of life, then if there is an area, whether central area or uh, industrialized city or rural area, it means that you are starting down the pathway of a chronic disease or you are at risk of dying for say COVID because we believe COVID interacting with an out of control operating system is why you die. And that's our hypothesis, is that uh, this is a great way to go around the world and see these disruptions. If you went into Africa and you saw this tribe over here is fine, this tribe, but all 30 miles away near these lakes where bubble over sea, uh, carbon monoxide, the RNA is completely out of sync. You can now uh, put your resources in the area to make sure everybody gets back in tune. So let me summarize that, is the fact that um, liquid biopsies do enable personalized medicine. Without them, we cannot go into each and every individual and say, this is your exact problem. And, uh, oops, jumped ahead here. Uh, DNA liquid biopsies, uh, personalized medicine, but it's unacceptably insensitive. The fact of the matter is we can't wait till tumor masses get big enough uh, for us to be able to detect them. We have to see them early on. In fact, we have to see what are the various early stages of what happens during malignancies and meet people then. So I believe there's going to be, and this is, this is the part where uh, it's my belief that when I sat down with a bunch of investment bankers 30 years ago, when I came up with my urine test for HIV, um, I said that the field of liquid biopsies is going to be something you should look at. And it's now $15 billion a year. And so I'm going to make that same prediction now, is I see that the truly enduring technology is going to be RNA, because RNA is the operating system. So you're not measuring a, a broken window. You're measuring the things that made that window break. And so that's why I believe that RNA is it. And that's why I invite everybody out there to come in and start, uh, well, competing with us because it's good for everybody. And so because of the higher signal to noise ratio than DNA, uh, then it should be the enduring technology once fully cracked. In other words, plastics. So rural areas in both industrialized and non-industrialized countries would have access the same worldwide medicine. To me, that's precision for all. And so uh, I know I went a little faster than I usually do, which means that people can get to the bards earlier. 
But I do want to say thank you to everybody and leave some time open for uh, Q&A. But I wanted to say thank you to Winnows because, you know, use of these social media platforms, uh, international uh, videos, and the like means we don't have to travel anymore. We can find each other faster. You know, there's a lot of bad things in the internet, but these are the good things of the internet. And one of those things is that I thank Winnows for inviting me for this very important lecture series. And Winnows in Taiwan, I want to give you a gift from my friend who just turned 80 years old two days ago. Narcissus Qualiata has been my long-term friend. We talk, the reason why I have an appreciation for music and art is because of friendships like Narcissus. And he built something in Taiwan that's at the Formosa Boulevard station in mid Taiwan that basically summarizes the sciences, the arts, and the music, but also human culture. It symbolizes all of our sufferings and all of our joys in the most beautiful display there is. And I uploaded a CD he gave to me that you can go to my YouTube channel and see what a great place it is if we just all could get these objectives worked out and do so in a timely fashion. So that's it. I thank you again for this opportunity to speak and uh, feel free to contact me directly, but I'd sure like to leave some time open for Q&A. Yeah, very thankful to Dr. Howard. Very insightful presentation about liquid biopsies in able personalized uh, medicine. And actually, the last slide, very uh, surprised. And actually, the picture is in the uh, Gaoxiong. It's my hometown and very yeah, beautiful city. And before we, uh, we are going to the enter Q&A session. Uh, so um, if you have any question, please feel free to write down in the box. And I think I can have a first question to Dr. Howard. Um, actually, I, Dr. Howard, I saw your post on LinkedIn about the uh, 50 year anniversary of your mother's death. The death certificate claimed it was breast cancer when she was uh, 46 years old. Yeah, um, I think it become a trigger to motivate you to dig into the personalized medicine. It's a very touching story. Would you mind to share your story about this? We would love to hear that. Very kind of you. Uh, so, you know, uh, it was a hard time 50 years ago because I was in high school and none of my other friends, parents were dying. Why is my mother dying? Okay, so she smoked. She lived in Detroit. We were sprayed with DDT to get rid of the uh, mosquitoes. In fact, a whole chapter in a book called Silent Spring was dedicated to Detroit and all of the chemicals they used to drop on us. Why? Because Detroit in the 50s was the powerhouse engine of the world to you know, come back with manufacturing and whatever it took to keep Detroit alive will help them. So they bombarded us with contaminated polio vaccines, uh, the uh, industrialization of uh, Detroit, uh, we have a river called the Rouge River, which means red in French, but we called it Rouge River because it was on fire all the time. So what we're saying is when you look around and you, you see all the toxicity a parent is exposed to, you have to ask the question, what caused all this? And, and where were we? And so the difficulty was simple, it is it's 1972 and we don't have sequencers. We don't have the map of the DNA. 
We don't have computers. We didn't have solar powered calculators, for goodness sake. So there was a lot of unknowns. And it's taken 50 years because of the fact that we need all these machines to do so. And so 50 years is a long time, but you've got to remember one thing. She must have been a hell of a mother because I've gone 50 years through hell and high water because the objective was that important. If I could figure out what killed my mother, help everybody never go through it again. And so that's the reason why that's my motivation. And I only brought it out this year because, well, I finally figured something out. I didn't want to say to my mom, well, I worked hard, but nothing happened. So this is the 50th year and it's, it's a long time coming, but I don't think we could have speed it, sped it up because we need these machines. And now we need machines like Windows because now we have to not just do this for our families in the city, but we have to do this for the world. And let me just add one more thing why. I posted what could go wrong. I'll tell you what could go wrong. Right now in Ukraine, uh, where this terrible thing is happening, where nuclear weapons uh, were cached, where fighting's going on during a pandemic, none of this sounds good to me. And so I'm worried about new flus coming out, Asian flus. You're creating reservoirs of control RNA operating systems that viruses take advantage of. And so this is why we have to be vigilant. And any person on the world create a mutated virus that could kill all of us. You could even get one in a, in a live market in Wuhan, China. So if it can happen there, it can happen everywhere. So this affects all of us. You may want to be an isolationist, but you may have to get your own closed system because we all share the air and the water. So that's what my mother's death meant to me is somebody's going to have to figure this out. And if you knew my mom, you'd know why I'm trying to do this. So I thank you for the question. Yeah, it's a very touching story. I think we share the same vision for human health and well-being because our founder, Dr. Joseph, he experienced the same pain. His father died of cancer when he was three years old and his mother had suffered from chronic disease. That's he wanted to build up windows and to make the prevention screening more accessible to reach any, everywhere and everyone. So the windows to be a blessing for the uh, chronic patient or the patient family like him. Yeah, uh, now we've got some question. So uh, there's a question said that, uh, Dr. Howard, thank you. What you are working on is indeed helpful to human well-being. Could you please elaborate more about biologic operating system, your system, BioOS? Uh, are you going to build up this system or are you also looking for any potential partners to work together? Thank you. Yes, excellent question. Uh, so uh, now I'm going to put my mentor hat on. Um, I am honored to be a mentor at the University of Iowa Papa John Center. And uh, the first thing you do is you start your uh, business canvas by saying, why would my product make people happy? And then one of those panels has to be partnerships because I want to uh, be able to not build everything from the ground up. We did all of this research for less than a million dollars and three people. And the reason why was we took advantages of the internet. We took advantages of contract uh, research and all the like. 
And so what we want to do now is uh, open up the door of the biological operating system. So let me go through this a little slower. And let me also kind of pique your interest a bit, because I said this would be informative. And, and, and all of this is mostly taken from Star Wars movies and the like. But the fact is that DNA, uh, excuse me, computer operating systems are silicon based. So really all they can do is code zero or one. And with that amazing uh, coding, they can move files around, documents, uh, applications, uh, 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 Twitter, whatever you want. And the like is found. Now, when you go to a carbon-based, which is life, now the operating system also becomes files. That should be one of those moments. I'll regret that. And so the uh, fact is that when you can now create RNA and it starts to fold on itself and it becomes a tool, and now it actually becomes an enzyme, a ribosome, and this amazing mystery of life that we're not even tapping into. I think we just built the next James Webb telescope to tell us what happens out there in the universe of molecules. And so by taking this approach that these are operating systems, and as we know, you hit the wrong button on a computer, error. You have to fix the error and you can't move on. We don't have that error detection system right now until it's too late, and those are called symptoms. So by taking a perspective, and please note, this is just my perspective, and I hope other people join me, is by taking that perspective of listening to an error message that comes up, now you can fix it. And you, there'll, there'll be a whole host of ways to fix it. In fact, we believe uh, one of our colleagues is Di uh, Professor Heinz Hainel, who uh, cured the world of sleeping sickness, and we're just so happy to have him with us. When he's reviewing our work, he sees pharmaceutical implications in all this. So are we looking for partners? Are you that partner? Well, let's have a discussion about it. Okay, so there's another question about uh, what's the first cancer are you trying to diagnose and why? Um, so I will make that announcement uh, the first week of June at the ASCO meetings, the American Society of Clinical Oncology. And so it's a teaser that you have to watch me again. And uh, I guess you could guess what I'm going to say, but we'll wait that for four weeks because uh, let me answer it on, on why I'm being a bit cagey. I was in the cancer diagnostic business. It was hard. And it was hard because there were so many unknowns. And, and, and so it got to a point that since my life's dedication is to get rid of cancer, I couldn't figure out cancer diagnostics because of cancer patients. That's why we went to the only way we thought we could understand the RNA operating system, the bio OS, was to do it in non-malignant patients because that way we wouldn't have the interference and noise of the cancer and we wouldn't we would know now which one's host, the patient, or the cancer. So when you do neurologic diseases, these are damaged cells in the brain tissue, the central nervous system, and that's where we saw it happen. So now we are posing the question, well, if it works for all these neurologic diseases, then we really have to ask the question, will it work in cancer as the earliest detector of cancer? Will it work in autoimmune diseases? 
And will it also work in things like who's at risk of dying for COVID? Because my theory is, and I hope by the end of the year to have the data, the people that die, we know what the comorbidity is. It's, uh, it's obesity, mor uh, morbid obesity. It's diabetes. These are all disruptions in the bio OS system. So that's your symptom. So how do we make sure that we all stay healthy, that the next time a virus comes through here or a bacteria or whatever, we're healthy, that the worst is a couple sneezes and you have to stay home from work. So that's where these applications go. And stay tuned because uh, I'm actually going up to Berlin to write my article in the Prussian Academy of Sciences in the office of Albert Einstein. And because I have this feeling that if he got inspired by some kind of thing going there, I'm going to try and maximize my possibility too. So stay tuned. Oh, awesome. Okay. So another question is that, um, have you sought combined protein cancer biomarkers with the RNA biomarkers you choose as the taste panel for the diagnosis? Uh, I'm sorry, you did break up a bit. Okay. Okay. I, I repeat again. Have you, yeah. start combining a protein cancer biomarkers with the RNA biomarkers, we do choose uh, as the taste panel for the diagnosis. Yes, that's excellent. Uh, so uh, that question in three weeks, four weeks also. Okay. So, um, actually, there's that of question. Uh, I just pick out this one. So, it's a long question. Is there that how about repeat RNA for early uh, neurodegenerative disease diagnosed or liquid biopsy assay, like ARS? We knew there is some repeat RNAs found, like C9 or uh, C72. The repeat RNAs have some specific or different structures. Do you feel those repeat RNAs are good targets for neurodegenerative uh, disease diagnosis using bio uh, liquid assay? Yeah. So, uh, and just to confirm, they were talking about repeat uh, sequences, right. right? Right. Okay. So, very good question. Uh, my life is uh, repeat. Uh, sequences. Um, so 97% of the human genome, a lot of this carries over into, you know, uh, animals and the like. Uh, but let's talk about the human genome right now. So about 97% is uh, uh, non-coding RNA. And a high percentage of that, let's say 9%, this may be a shocker to some people, 9% of your body is a retrovirus. Oh, that ain't good. But it actually turns out it's very good. It seemed that it was an advantage to keep it, so we keep that. Then you have things called alu elements, sign elements, line elements. It's, it's fantastic. In fact, that one slide I had with a big ball of all those things, they're all in there. But so what I will say is the repeat elements are in fact part of the RNA, uh, the part of the bio-OS because they will reverse copy things They'll find something they like, hold on to it. So all kinds of things and archivings are going on. Are they the biomarker? Well, I'll have to tell you once our patent becomes published. Okay, thanks for your answer. And okay, I think the last question, 
Um, it's an inspiring presentation, and that's the pioneer in the RNA-based sequencing. So uh, the audience would like to know, uh, learn more about your biggest challenge in your research, and how do you overcome them? Yeah. So, you know, the biggest challenge is uh, people like Elizabeth Holmes. All right. So I'm going to keep kicking her until I don't need to kick her anymore. We had an uh, individual who dropped out of college. That seems to be the current trend. I, I think that's the dumbest thing in the world. And so she dropped out. And because of the boneheads of, of, of Silicon Valley, they gave her a billion dollars on a lie. So every time I would give these inspiring, as you can tell, inspiring discussions to investment people, their checkbooks are out, their, uh, their uh, PayPal's are ready to send me over $5 million, the same question came out every time. This is really great, Howard. Can you do it with a, in other words, one that's, that you guys are way ahead of, they want to know their simple stick if you could do it. And I said, nobody can challenge there was no money there's no money from the federal government nothing so what we did this time was we started from scratch and here's a shout out to the university of iowa and the state of iowa and iowa state they said look it's not that we don't believe you it's just that we have a system you know like we need a proof of commercial uh, uh viability here then if you make that milestone let's do a demo so in other words slowly through the scientific method to an answer that gets you to where you need to go. That seems to be the only way. So my message to the entrepreneurs of tomorrow is carve out 10 to 15 years to get your idea on the market, do it slowly and make as few mistakes as possible. So the challenges are always funding. Resources, no way. Uh, we, uh, our technical person uh, uh, works remotely because everything we do is in silico. We communicate through the world, through Zoom and all the other places. And the fact that I'm having this worldwide conference through Taiwan and I'm in Germany representing an Iowa company. Well, you know what, it, it's turning out to be a smaller world. So the challenges will always be there is getting people to believe you because the only way you'll change the world is through disruptive technology. But that means you're ahead of the curve, which means nobody knows what you're doing. So. Stick to the scientific method until people have enough confidence in what you're doing because the fastest way to get your product to market is to make the fewest amount of mistakes. That's my feeling. Yeah, thanks for your answer. And actually, there are a lot of questions, but just one more question. So, please, sure. that. thank you so much for your presentation. The sequencing technology is uh, fascinating and exciting since the first Generation sequencing is developed. Do you think we can see a sequencing PLCT in the near future? Yeah, so we're, we'll be, there will always be a need for sequencing. That's clear. But for remote labs, what we hope to do is we've got to make sure that those machineries can be well funded by the solar panels that are on the roof and that can be uh, done well with all the equipment necessary. We need equipment like yours so that you get more blood out of a blood stick than what uh, was previously proposed. But we have to remember, all of us, that the end target is the patient, is that we have to make it easy for the patient, we have to make it as painless for the patient, and we have to make it as efficiently informative 
for the patient. So will there be sequencing? I think so. I, I think that uh, if we get targeted stuff, uh, if we have targeted panels like a million or so that we have to go after, you can do those sequencing. And, and the manufacturers out there are doing brilliant stuff. These machines are truly unbelievable. They fund artificial intelligence because now I'm adding trillions of pieces of data in and I'm now watching the universe of the dynamics of the human body by having all of this data. That's our side to get diagnosis. But at the patient side, it's got to be as simple as possible. We're not there yet, but we know how to get there. Yes, truly. So actually, we still have a lot of questions left, but I think the time is up. So we will reply to those questions after the webinar. So thank you again, uh, Dr. Howard. Thanks for your sharing, your presentation, and the Q&A session. It's very insightful discussion here. Yeah, thank you. And thank you, and everybody Taiwan. visit Taiwan. It's a beautiful place. Yeah, welcome to visit. Okay, see you, everyone. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye.